the idea of cohort-based learning looks good on paper, but is a little bit harder in the execution. We're going to explore this idea with Mike Kester from Lead Belay on this episode of the Learning Geeks podcast, starting now. Hey guys, that sounded a little different. Did you notice something different? Yeah, a little it different. Sound a little different. I like it. A little different. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. We we have welcome, Mike. We have some new theme music. You know, we're we're doing kind of an overall brand refresh right now. So we just want to acknowledge that we have new theme music for the Learning Geeks. Okay. I think it's fantastic. Really, oh, thank you. That's your personalities. Great. And <laughs> Mike you. gets to break it in for us. Yeah, yes. that's yeah. You are our first guest in the era of the new Learning Geeks theme music. Well, I feel honored. Which I should credit was was composed by uh, Jessalyn Joy Dudinsky and Kurt Heineke, friends of the program, who did that for us. By, by the way, we just have to mention this. I just have to say this. Now that we're recording this, Andor is done. Andor was fantastic. And I want to say this to Learning yeah. Geeks fans who fast forward through when we talk about Star Wars. Give Andor a try. Because if you don't like Star Wars as much, try watching Star Wars or try watching Andor. It's it's a different animal and it's really, really good. Yeah, I do agree. Watching having watched the entire series, it's it's like a Star Wars setting that's as a show written for and produced for adults. Yeah. Which so mm-hmm. it felt it felt different. But it was still kind of in that in that universe. It was great. It's great. And as I understand it, they've uh, committed to season two. Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah. I think that was always in the yep. bag. I think they've started working on that, so that's good. It's interesting. Um, a lot of the people who work on Andor also worked on the show The Americans, which was on FX several years ago, which my son has been trying to get my wife and I to watch for years. And finally, when he was back for break, he sat us down you know, on threat of violence and was like, we are going to watch the first episode of the Americans. And now my wife and I are hooked. We're, we're like, you know, we finish working, we make something for dinner, we sit down and we start watching the Americans and we're, we're knocking off like four or five episodes a night. So it's a great show. I watched it that is. Too. It's embarrassing, but um, <laughs> let's, okay. Let's try to make a connection here. Um, in the Americans, they are spies. They are a couple, and they are part of a cohort of KGB spies in 1980s America. <laughs> Just so happens we're talking about cohort-based learning with Mike Kester, the founder and CEO of Lead Belay. For those who can't see, Mike is putting his hands to his face like, <laughs> how do we get out of this one and get into something that relates to learning and cohorts? It was a little bit of a tortured connection, but that's okay. We, we can go from there. Um, actually, you know, before we dive into to cohort stuff, I was thinking, Mike, we, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey. You know, I, I first knew you as founder um, at Regis, and, you know, now you've got this lead belay thing going. Maybe tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, so I um, actually started out in management consulting a long, long time ago and then went into the learning space kind of early 2000s in the e-learning space to begin with, and then had a business I merged into the Regis company, which is where we we met. So Mm -hmm. um, along with Mike Vaughn, we were the the co-leads of the Regis company for a good 11 years. And so he had been involved before that as I brought the other business in and learned a lot through that experience about the design development of custom um, experiential learning 
simulations, leadership development programs, and it kind of all culminated after close to a decade in what I'm doing now, which was to create a cohort-based experience, a high-impact leadership development experience for new managers. So something that would be uh, that would make a, a big difference in people's lives, really transformative, but not be super expensive. There are these great cohort learning models in everything from Center for Creative Leadership to YPO and, and Vistage models like that for more senior people, but they tend to be extremely expensive and therefore they're just not attainable for the average leader who's emerging in an organization. And they're the ones who need it the most. You want to kind of give them the support that they need when their careers are developing before they've kind of gotten entrenched in all kinds of bad habits, frankly. And so instead of trying to fix somebody who is late in their career, get get people the support they need early in their career. That was the that was the vision. We wanted to make that kind of an experience affordable and attainable to anyone who's got the will to grow. So I'm wondering if we want to kind of start with a basic discussion. What what defines a cohort? And and if I'm looking at a group of people, how do I know if they are or are not a cohort? Yeah, that's so good question. Um, co- cohort learning is it's a really broad category. I mean, it can be anything from a small group, even a couple people. It's, it's a study group in graduate school or, or college, all the way to a large scale community of practice of people who are contributing to solving a complex problem for one another or a tech online community where people are are chiming in with with ideas and different approaches to to do things better and differently Um, and everything in between. So small groups of people who are supporting each other in their growth and development. The thing that makes cohort learning different from traditional learning is that it's less about wisdom being imparted and pushed from an expert and more about the members of the community teaching and learning from each other, challenging one another. And you get a lot of benefits from that. There's there's huge benefits from, um, and I know I've got Grace Chang on later on this show. She can talk about some of the neuroscience benefits. But when we teach other people or when we engage socially, different parts of our brains are stimulated that result in changing mental models more deliberately. It's not just the, the impact you have from absorbing information or content or even thinking hard about things. Um, yet only, I think this last year, Training Magazine, when they do their, their annual survey, looking at different modalities of learning that are used in the corporate world, only 6% of learning in the corp- corporate world is described as uh, social learning. However, it's incredibly engaging and incredibly impactful. Now, you, just a quick follow-up. You said that there's um, quite a range of the number of people in a cohort when you're doing cohort learning, is there kind of an optimal size? And if so, um, what, what would a, the composure look like for an optimal cohort? Yeah, it's also a great question. Uh, there's not there's not one that's, optimal That's size. the last of my great questions after this Bob and Jay are going to have to ask. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm done. I it's a Friday afternoon. I got my two in. So. <laughs> I'm not going to compliment any more of your questions either, Tina. Okay. Uh, so, it depends on the purpose of the cohort. So very large cohorts or cohort groups can be great when you're trying to leverage the, the wisdom or thinking of a diverse audience. So kind of going back to the example of the tech community, a bunch of programmers who are helping solve one another's problems, and you want the expert idea being dropped in. A larger cohort can be great for that. However, on the flip side, if you're trying to create a very intimate space with a lot of psychological safety, 
so that people can speak up and talk about very, very personal things and be highly vulnerable, a much smaller cohort is going to be more appropriate. So I would think of those as the, the ends of the spectrum. And then everything in between uh, is going to have different purposes too, depending on the logistics and the, and the needs of any organization. Interesting. So how, how big are your cohorts that you create at Lead Belay for your leadership development? Yeah. So, I mean, our goal was to, to replicate the, the very small, intimate, safe, safe environment that people would feel like if a CEO was to go to, an, to a, uh, an open enrollment program at the Center for Creative Leadership. And they would fly off to this great location and, and they would build these deep, close personal relationships. And to do that virtually, because our program is delivered virtually to be, to be affordable, um, we found that it has to be capped at about six. So we, okay. tested, we tested groups of seven and eight, and seven became a shift going from, from six to seven, uh, which kind of goes back to some of the things I had learned when, when I was working on simulation design and development. And actually, a, a peer and colleague of, of all of you, actually, John Sangimino, uh, he talked about when you're, when you're designing a social learning experience, you want to keep the group small enough that it would be kind of mirroring a table, uh, dinner table discussion. What's the largest group you can have that engages in the same conversation before they begin to break off? And online, that's even more important. It's easy for the introvert to fade into the background or for somebody who has a really pressing problem to not get the airtime to address it if you've got too large a group. And when you pull together those cohorts for uh, for leadership development, do you like encourage teams from the same company and same department to all come in as a cohort, or do you mix things up? What, what have you found about that? Yeah, so we we started off with the belief that that uh, we were going to have more safety if we were mixing people across organizations. So we wanted true strangers coming into the group. We didn't want uh, anybody worrying about the political ramifications of saying things that might be perceived as critical of their organization or talking about members of their team. We wanted to have that same uh, th that same permission to be completely open and authentic that they would have if they went to you know, one of those CCL type programs or one of the, the top tier custom programs that Regis used to create. So we don't put more than one person from the same organization in a group. And that's a strict rule you've stuck to. Well, composure of the group is really interesting to me because that's one of the challenges I found in actually making cohort learning work. Uh, I, I've designed a couple of programs with cohort-based learning, and neither of them have wound up being successful. So, you know, I, of course, blame the idea of cohort learning. It couldn't possibly be me as the learning designer who could have anything wrong. But um, okay, so so I'm trying to learn here. Um, one of the challenges that I've had in the past is the composure of the group. You know, it, because you kind of run the risk of having a cohort that is all rock stars, and then another cohort that is not rock stars. Um, or I, I think more often what you see is a mix, and then you've got the rock stars who are dominating the group and the not rock stars who kind of are just along for the ride, aren't quite as engaged, aren't necessarily doing the work. It, how, how do we correct for that? Or, you know, am I overemphasizing that? No, it's, it's, I, we, we also started with a hypothesis that getting the groups formed correctly, uh, where you've got the right balance of diversity to create the spark and energy across the group, but, and just enough common experience to be able to relate to each other's challenges was going to be critical. So when we got started with the research for that, that became Leap LA ultimately, and it was a project 
He started inside the Regis company before carving it off. Um, Grace, actually, who's going to be on the show, we mentioned earlier, she steered me to a ton of neuroscience and, and other social science uh, papers and research, to, to, and I just devoured it. I think I went through 30 studies pretty quickly, read some books, and began trying things, experimenting. Uh, and that was what we found. So there are a few basic principles. We, when, For us, we're talking about new managers, and now we've got a, a leader of leader program too, but we want people who are leading similar sized teams who have been managing professionally for about the same length of time and have some similarities in their operating environment. You know, for example, are they primarily responsible for execution versus innovation? And that's it. Initially we flirted with, do we want similar age ranges within groups? Um, are there other factors? Do we want to have similarity of industry? And we went, we, we tested different approaches and went with as much diversity in the end as we could possibly get. So we have people from different functions, different industries, different geographies, from uh, different cultures. We'll have somebody who is meeting late day for them in Australia as part of a group with somebody on the West Coast US and somebody from Latin America. And that has been fantastic. Some of the best and strongest feedback we have is that diversity in, in different, different points of view. We wanna balance introversion and extroversion uh, so you don't end up with that one person who dominates the conversation. Everyone has a different point of view. They all have something to contribute and it, it just naturally evolves and comes out. When you have groups that are a little too homogeneous, you, it doesn't have the spark. You can have group think, uh, and you can have some people just overwhelm others because they're kind of talking about the same stuff. So the loudest voice dominates as opposed to, oh, that's something I didn't even think of before. And it's a point of view I just never had. So, Mike, what what are some mechanisms in place to reduce the loud voices in the room or those that are outside of what you just said, how, how you pair? But what are some ways that you kind of calm those voices down so you feel like everyone has an equal footing? So, yeah, so there are a few things that, that we do that have worked really well. Uh, first, we invest pretty heavily up front some time in building relationships within the group. Okay. We want people to, to get to know one another as human beings and to, 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 well, to part of the define, define each other as is in group. But by doing that, the person who might be inclined to dominate the conversation is going to begin to see, oh, these other people are really interesting human beings and they are different from me. So we want to show them that right away. It also creates that trust and safety. So we created a, a set of exercises. We call them rapid relationship building exercises. And there effectively, it was, it was an idea that came out of um, research around the 36 questions. If you've ever heard of it, if you Google it, you'll find the 36 questions that make people fall in love. But talk, talk more about that, Mike, really quick, because uh, I, I find that fascinating. And we, we've talked about that before, but maybe share just a little bit more about the 36 questions. Yeah. So the, the 36 questions are first developed by a professor out of one of the CUNY New York universities, but then a group out of Berkeley did some research around it where they would put two complete strangers together and then have them go through this series of questions from one question to the next. It requires a little bit more vulnerability and, and authenticity and, and openness to kind of answer. So you start off with some fairly innocuous questions about like where you'd like to travel or whatever else. And then as you move through them, they, they get to some pretty tough stuff, things that are very yeah. deeply self-reflective. And when you, when you, when both people spend time going through those questions, they, each person answers every question and then moves through them somewhat in order. Uh, 
there's a vulnerability that they show and exhibit that builds trust very, very quickly. So in this Berkeley study, they would the two people would spend about 45 minutes going through 36 questions. Afterwards, they evaluated how close or how much they, they trusted one another. And they registered on average higher levels of trust than people in long-term committed relationships on average. Just shocking stuff. Amazing. Yeah. We don't have the time to do a full 45 minutes in, in multiple rounds of it. So we created our own versions and modeled it and tested it. But we do some some shorter versions within the group and then some other ways of getting the group sharing. But that's that's a critical first step, kind of get people seeing one another as humans, respecting their, their points of view. And then we also do working agreements up front. So there's a lot of expectation setting. So we have everyone sign a an agreement as a pledge as they come into the experience. It's a pledge of confidentiality. It's also about their commitment to one another, the importance they have for each other. And then the coach, because we do have coach guided experiences, will emphasize the importance of that. And then we'll talk about working agreements up front. Then they'll do the rapid relationship building and they just keep getting to know each other more and more intimately through the, through the experience. This is a variation on the question that Jake just asked. So how do you constrain the wild horses when your entire cohort are all type A personalities? Um, well, it, it, well, for one, we do have, so we have a coach guided experience. So there is a coach there. Who, there is a facilitator or a coach. We, okay. we do have a facilitator. Now we're, we're beginning to flirt with, and, and part of our long-term vision is to prepare groups to be able to be self-led and self-organized longer term. Um, and uh, we're finding that that close to half of our groups are meeting on their own, even just of their own volition after the group finishes. So we've got a nine week experience. People meet every week. They do some work on their own uh, and they keep meeting. So it's, it's it's been fantastic. But during that nine weeks, the coach is there to, to kind of moderate things. But it hasn't been a hard a hard thing for them to do because we've laid the, the foundation. Uh, they've set the tone. Um, but then but, but they're there to to pull in somebody who might be thinking and sitting back a little bit, absorbing and processing, but to make sure they still feel welcome and to speak up or, um, or to shift away from somebody who might be dominating the conversation. It, it just doesn't tend to be very hard with groups that size when you've laid the foundation. And you said nine weeks. Is there an optimal length of time and, and, I guess a related question is how do you keep people engaged? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what I was thinking, Dana, because that's one thing, Mike, that I think probably all of us struggle with whenever we've done yeah. cohort learning is not just sustaining it over that time. But, you know, there's the battle of time during the week of, oh, I could skip that. Meh, I don't, I don't need to do that t- this week. And then that turns into next week. I, I almost did that today with my dentist appointment. I was like, yeah, I could I can I can wait a couple more weeks, but I stuck with it. <laughs> But, you know, there's always those moments when you have that. So I'm, I'm curious, too, along with Dana. Well, so first, we did a ton of research early on before we would just put in user testing to figure out what the right length of time was and the right total commitment for this experience would be. My initial vision was like a five to six month program that people would spend hours every week working on their own personal growth and development as leaders. And my thinking was, well, who wouldn't want that? <laughs> I designed one of those few ones and I yeah. was like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. But but I'm also a learning geek, so like you. So you're right. The the, um, the reality is as we started to actually to, to talk to real users, true managers who are new in role struggling, and I'm twenty years removed from that point in my career, 
they, they're busy. They're, they're in many cases, newlyweds or the new parents. They're getting crushed at the most challenging job they've ever had. The transition from being a high-performing individual contributor to, oh my God, I'm just overwhelmed with all these people issues coming at me. So we found that nine weeks was the, was the ideal balance point for us to be long enough to make a real impact, to get people truly connected, to give them some opportunity to really build some skills. There's a lot of scaffolding across the program, but not so long that people would be overwhelmed, so overwhelmed that they wouldn't sign up and, and start it. Mm -hmm. uh, we also settled on a total time commitment of about two to three hours per week. So that's for our program and for our purpose. There are right. programs, cohort learning programs that are, that are much longer in duration, depending on the goal of the organization. I've talked to companies that have created programs that are intentionally long because they want to get people pulled into a community and use it as a retention tool. Mm. And that's, that's great as long as you can mm. keep people engaged, as long as you can really hook them and then drive that engagement. And Bob, you talked about designing cohort learning. Um, it can be hard. You're talking about social experimentation. The, the lean principles, kind of, if you've read Lean Startup, uh, are things we embraced heavily from the beginning. You want to test as soon as you possibly can, build, test, learn, iterate fast, and don't have much content early on. Stay content light, focused on the interaction between people because it's more about that. And then you're going to see what works and what doesn't. Try yeah. lots and lots of things. So I'm going to turn around back to Bob then because you were talking about your example. Yeah. Everything kind of Mike's been saying, or even probably what you've thought, what what would you have done differently then in that example that you're sharing? Yeah, really good question. I, I think the biggest thing that I would do is make that investment in the relationship building up front. Um, like, well, because one of the other problems that we had aside from the imbalance of the teams was people dropping out. So I'm curious to come back to you later, Mike, and, and see what your what your retention rate is, because I imagine it's probably pretty high. Actually, I'm going to ask you now, what, what is your retention rate? <laughs> so our, our retention for the nine weeks, we we've had we've had less than one and a half percent of participants quit the program midway because it wasn't a fit for them. Yeah. And our, our attendance level, our attendance levels over 90 percent on average across the the wow. just blew me away. That's incredible. And, and, and so I wonder, like, if the people on the cohorts that I designed really felt that sense of social commitment to each other, that they were part of a team and that the other people in the team were counting on them for something, uh, it would be harder for them to drop out and, you know, ultimately would be more beneficial for them as well. I think that's the first thing that I would focus on. Got it. Okay. What do you think, Jake? What would you do? I think the upfront relationship bit is so important. I think having someone there with you too to facilitate is is also helpful. I've run programs where we've had that type of cohort learning where we didn't have the moderator or someone guiding you throughout and it just fell off. Sometimes it worked really well. Something that you said, Mike, earlier though, that kind of, I, I, was, I was thinking about how this could potentially work in an organization like ours or mine or, or, or Bob's and Dana's around making sure that whoever is within your group, there's not that level of fear that someone's going to retaliate against me based off of what I said. So in your case, you said you develop teams that have some similarities, but they don't necessarily either work with each other or, you know, there's no connection in terms of their, their, their supervisor or something like that. 
So I'm thinking about in my in my case, how do we do? You, know, you could do that, um, but then once you're done learning, how do we make sure that when we come back into the flow of work or to everyday work that I'm actually transferring that in? Because if my supervisor, my person, whoever's leading me is not there with me, how do I make sure that I just don't fall back right into the same patterns or they, they're the barrier that doesn't allow me to actually do something differently? So that's kind of one thing I'm in my mind. And I don't know if you've thought of that or if you've had individuals talk to you about that specifically, about that challenge of, of those individuals that could be barriers when they're trying to transfer their learning. Yeah, so you touched on a couple things, Jake. Uh, you know, one is kind of creating safety within the group if you're going to be building something within an organization. And my my general recommendation, unless you need to have a common, a more common base of knowledge within a business unit, within a function, if that's not the core of the learning, mix as much as you can across the organization mm-hmm. you have. So, so try to get people who are not likely to be crossing paths in, in their mm-hmm day-to-day world. Um, but again, unless you need to have, unless the subject matter is going to require a little more closeness just around the, the, the population and, and their roles. The second thing though, um, in, in terms of just creating the, the engagement over, over time, that's going to be resulting in behavior change, um, ask them to do things. If you're talking, one of the benefits about cohort learning is it, it tends to be journey-based or mm-hmm, right. longevity to it. Uh, so in our program, we're very deliberate. We move through a cadence of, we want to prime people, not a lot of content. Sometimes they'll watch mm-hmm. a TED talk, read a short curated article, do a little self-reflection. So they come into the group meeting prepared to have a rich discussion, to do some experiential activities, and then go and apply it. So there are specific things we're asking them to do every single week. So as they come out, they're going to go and, and, and do things. And that kind of application from one week to the next and concepts that build on themselves as we're scaffolding over time uh, is, is really powerful. It's really rich. How do, you, how do you measure the success of a cohort? So we're doing a few things with data right now. Um, so we, t- typical smile sheet type stuff, although going as deep as we can at, at the end of the program. When we first when we were first testing and then piloting, we would ask participants to fill out very short surveys, like periodically through the sessions. So and we asked questions about how close they felt to one another and compare it to things that they could benchmark against, a significant other, a family member, a friend, and so forth. Um, now we just simply get information at the end of the nine weeks. Uh, that's fairly standard. We want feedback for the, for the guide the coach that's running their group, um, and then what would they recommend we change and so forth. So all the level one stuff. We do package that up and share it very transparently, preserving the confidentiality of the individuals with with organizations. Three months after the program, we also have a behavioral-based self-assessment. So self-assessments are are notoriously flawed. Uh, However, (laughs) when you focus on behaviors, specific observable behavior, you can be more accurate. So what are they observing within their team? What's changed? And what are they observing within themselves? And we try to keep these very focused and targeted. So these should be a couple minutes to fill out. We're launching this year 180 degree assessments as a pre and post for measurement. Um, But again, the the intent is for them to be very focused and very short. It's going to focus on kind of Google Project Oxygen type stuff. Um, Are you doing those things to create cohesive teams, to keep people engaged, to to build longevity um, in terms of effectiveness within the team. 
So those are the things we're doing and we're sharing it transparently with our organizations. Again, preserving individual confidentiality, but aggregating the data. That's great. So Mike, if you have inspired a learning designer, architect, developer, uh, who maybe they listen to the Learning Geeks podcast uh, to try cohort-based learning. Are there any other pro tips that you would recommend, things to think of off the gate, things to make sure, you know, things to avoid? The main thing is just start. I mean, it, it is, mm. I mean, build, let's learn. just build a prototype, get started, use technology you already have. Don't go spend a bunch of money yet. I mean, there's some fantastic cohort learning platforms. Uh, I know a few pretty well, but before you even get there, just use what you already have. Use and we we used um, Google Drive extensively early on, and lots of PDFs before we started automating and building more technology for our program. Build it and, and do things manually. There's this concept of a concierge MVP talked about in Lean Startup. Manually yeah. do things behind the scenes that are truly not scalable until you move to technology just to test what works because you're trying. It's, it's social experimentation. You want to see what's going to engage people, get them connected to one another, get them coming back. Just get started with that and keep the content light to begin with. Focus on the social yeah. interaction and just try stuff out. Iterate and learn. That's great. I love that idea of the pay no attention to the man behind the curtain MVP <laughs> <laughs> before you spend all the money on automating, right? So that's yeah. that's great. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, looking at the clock on the wall, we, we went through this very quickly. Um, any last thoughts? Any last questions from my colleagues here? I, I do have one last question, and that right. is uh, virtual, live, or hybrid. Oh, If you're creating a cohort, uh, what have you learned from that? Because oh, nice. different companies are living in different realities as far as whether they can actually physically get people together. Yeah. Uh, so th th there really depends. I mean, our our goal, we knew we needed to be virtual with the, the Lead Delay project from the beginning just to be affordable. So our challenge was find ways that people will develop trust-based relationships when you don't have sensing proximity, sensing pheromones, sensing uh, micro gestures, right? So what can you ramp up? And we were thinking about it like if you lost one of your five senses, you got the others you can lean into, what can you do? So that was our mindset from the beginning. If you have people that you can bring together within the budget for in-person learning for a cohort experience, great. That's That can be fantastic. Hybrid is problematic, as I'm sure you've all experienced. Yeah. Um, it, especially for something where you want deep, intimate connection among people. There's a, there's a, a haves and have-nots between those who are in the room together versus those who are not. Uh, I would generally avoid that for most cohort learning. You have to have a really compelling reason to need to do it. Uh, so avoid it if you can. I'm happy to talk with anyone about some of the best practices related to those approaches, though. All right. So, Bob, thanks. Thanks for letting me ignore the clock on the wall. No, <laughs> that was great. a great question. And that actually that, that was my experience because I was part of a, of a very high commitment, long term learning group uh, based in Chicago um, where we were all live. And then I moved to L.A. A couple other people moved away. And so it became a hybrid. And you know, I found from my personal experience, it was very tough for me to stay connected to the group. And I had to actually get into Chicago at least once a month. So we were meeting on a weekly basis. I had to get there at least once a month to keep that level of commitment. And, you know, that's just not sustainable. I, I would I would like to try it again. I hope the situation arises that I can try again. 
I hope I hope you do too. There far more learning should be social based, should be cohort based than it is today. It's engaging, yeah. it drives impact, it drives connection to the organization, or if your organization is sponsoring you for something external, it's 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 appreciated. And I I would say one of the biggest stats that when you mentioned earlier about six percent of corporate actually assume that that's what they do in terms of social learning is only six percent, or they they only think six percent of their learning is social. That number to me is just mind boggling. That, yeah. like that's all they think of, of social learning, even though it's pathetic probably higher. Pathetic is the word that comes to my mind. Pathetic. Yeah, exactly. Pathetic. <laughs> there you go. The better. That's a perfect segue to finish the show. <laughs> that's right. Well, I think we're demonstrating the deep connection here that, you know, we don't want to get, actually get off the recording session. So uh, with that, we will force ourselves to do it. So, Mike, thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Mike. On behalf of Jake and Dana, this is Bob saying uh, stay tuned for a upcoming episode of the Learning Geeks podcast coming real soon. And as you mentioned a couple times, Mike, uh, we'll be featuring your colleague, Grace Chang, to talk a little bit about the neuroscience of cohorts. So we'll come back to this idea very shortly. So everybody, thanks again for listening to us. Now I am actually going to say goodbye. See you later. Bye. Thanks, Mike. Bye. Thank you all.